Well, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. One of the things that we do that's very important by coming together is to encourage one another. And the fact that you're here, your very presence, shows that you've done that already. You've accomplished that. And in doing so, we thank you. Before we go any further, let's uh, begin with a prayer. Almighty Father in heaven, we are so very thankful for all you've done for us. We're thankful, Father, for your love. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the wisdom that you've promised us. And we ask for that now, Father. Guide us through this, Father. Help your word be seen in its beauty and its truth. And just help and guide all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The inspiration for today's lesson comes from my wife. In fact, Susan inspires me every day. Just the other night, we were sitting on the couch, and she looked deeply into my eyes, and she said, you know, I love almost everything about you. (laughs) Well, I I know my wife loves me, but it was the word almost that sort of stuck in my ear. After almost 44 years of marriage, I guess I expected such a declaration of love to be a little more on the unequivocal side. I frankly didn't know quite how to respond. I thought about saying, well, dear, I love everything about you, except maybe for all the times you complain about my driving. But but I decided not to go there, and I think quite wisely so. But that story highlights what we all want. We want unqualified, unequivocal, unconditional love. No almost, no except for Love that does not necessarily ignore our shortcomings, but love that is true and constant and unwavering, never in doubt, regardless of our shortcomings. We want to be loved for who we are, faults and all. You know, you don't have to look far in this world to see, see what's in the papers, see what's on the news, see what's on TV, to see that people are having a major trouble looking for and understanding what love really is, much less exhibiting it in their lives. It's quite apparent that most people don't seem to have a clue as to what love really is all about. Now, some of us are just lucky. Some of us are just so doggone lovable that finding unconditional love isn't much of a problem, is it? Well, at least we find almost unconditional love. If you looked at the bulletin, you may have seen that the title of the lesson this morning is, Have You Come to Church or Have You Come to Worship? And I hope nobody is offended by that question. It's an important question to ask that highlights how easy it is to lose sight of what it is that we're all about as Christians. How many times have we heard or perhaps said ourselves, Let's go to church, when what we're talking about is coming to this building, I grew up in a denomination, and the church was a building. How many kids over the years have been taught, this is the church, this is the steeple, open the doors and hear all the people? And of course, that's a misconception. The church is not a building. The church is the saved. The church is us. But how many times do we see when we drive down the street that we in the church today compound the confusion. We label our buildings Church of Christ. Have you ever heard people say or said yourself, well, I just didn't get much out of church today. Whether we know it or not, that statement highlights a really, really big problem 
And it comes down to whether we really understand and accept God's love, his unconditional love, whether or not that love is real in our lives. Love is the key. Wayne quoted John 13.35, and we can all quote that. It says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. To paraphrase, they will know we are Christians by our love. So what distinguishes us from the world? We spend lots of time in the church talking about our doctrine, five authorized acts of worship, five steps to salvation, and that is important stuff. Making sure our doctrine faithfully aligns with God's instructions is extremely important, and it's one way we honor God. But John 13.35 does not say that people will know we are Christians by our doctrine. Does our Bible knowledge distinguish us from the world? Perhaps to a degree. It seems as time goes by, people know less and less about the Bible in this world. Bible knowledge is also extremely important, and it's another way we honor God, to seek to know everything about him. But John 13, 35 does not say they will know we are Christians by our Bible knowledge. As Christians, what makes us different? Now, for those of you who are visiting this morning, I hope you find this a friendly and loving congregation. But let's face it, while the world may not fully understand God's unconditional love, there are many, many groups of people that are meeting this very morning that are trying their best sincerely to reflect love as they understand it, doing the best they can to treat others as they'd like to be treated. Many people of all faiths, all religions, trying to be true to their understanding of what love is all about. So what distinguishes us from them? What will draw people to Christ? What will enable our growth? In Ephesians 3, Paul prays, starting in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through faith, I'm sorry, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Really understanding God's love is a really big deal. Paul's prayer shows that it's not easy, it's hard. In fact, he say, states that to know the love of Christ is something that surpasses knowledge. That means we cannot understand it on our own. We have got to have help. God's help that we might understand his love for us. And that's what Paul prays for. This scripture also says another very important thing. That if we are to be filled up with all the fullness of God, we must, we have to, Know God's love. Now, that's, of course, impossible in the next 15 minutes to cover this. I think we need many, many, many lessons that focus on this topic. It is so important. 
So what I'd like to do this morning is just to focus on one practical aspect, one example that reflects God's love for us and how that love can change us, how it can be real in our lives. I believe there are a couple of basic ingredients to understanding God's unconditional love for us. So what I want to talk about is a church service that's recorded in the New Testament. It's found in Luke chapter 7. One simple verse, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Well, okay, this isn't a church service. It's a dinner party. But when you consider what was going on here, the similarities with what was planned at the Pharisee's house and what we normally experience in a typical church service are strikingly similar. The Pharisee, a fellow named Simon, wanted to associate with Jesus. Simon was a religious fellow. He was a good guy. He was a leader of the Jews. Jesus was a hot topic. What he was saying was drawing lots of attention. Simon apparently wanted to know more, and at least on a cursory basis, he wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. He felt meeting with Jesus was a good thing to do, the right thing to do. He was a pious man, a man of faith, and part of that was doing things that reflected his faith. To get together with others of faith, to talk about religious things. He had a big dinner. I'm sure he wanted to enjoy the social aspects of getting together with a bunch of like-minded people. Some folks came to dinner, I'm sure, expecting to be entertained. A bunch of people gathered together, enjoying talking about Jesus, being religious, and feeling good about themselves. When you think about it, doesn't that sound a lot like a typical church service? Getting together to discuss religion? We certainly want to associate with Jesus. We often come thinking that it's the right thing to do, that it's good for us to associate with godly things and godly activities. We want to enjoy the fellowship. We may expect to be entertained. We may want to come to learn about new things and just hope that the sermon's not too long. And all of that's not bad. However, when you think about it, it doesn't sound too compelling, does it? If that's our religious experience, if that's what coming to church is all about, it becomes something that's a good thing to do if we have the time, if there's not something better to do, if the kids aren't involved in some important activity that's more important than coming to church. If that's our expectation, coming here is not something that's essential, is it? It's not vital in our lives. And I hope this morning what I've described is not your experience, not your expectations. But I suspect that what I've described is the expectation, the experience that many who are not here this morning realize. But fortunately, the meeting at Simon's house wasn't just a dinner party. It may have been like a church service, but in a very, very, very real way, this meeting was a worship service. Continuing, continuing to read in verse 37 and following, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head 
and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. It's not recorded, but I suspect Simon thought to himself, She's a sinner, and boy, am I glad I'm not one of those. The big difference between Simon and this woman, the big difference between coming to church and coming to worship, is the understanding of God's unconditional love for us. The woman got it. Simon didn't. Now all of us can quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But do we understand what that really means for, to us on a personal basis? Is it real for us? It does sound so general, Jesus dying for the whole world. Maybe we get lost in that. Romans 5.8 makes it a little clearer and a little more personal. It says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God hopes that we'll love him as he loves us. But Romans 5.8 really embodies the definition of what unconditional love is all about. He loves us regardless of our response, whether we return that love or not. It's really incredible. But Romans 5.8 is also pretty general, and maybe it doesn't get to where we are personally. Colossians 1.21-22 makes it a bit clearer. He says, Paul says, And although you were formerly, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 10, also gets down to a personal level. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit is, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which, with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what compelled this woman to Jesus, to come to Jesus? Jesus answers that in Luke 7, continuing in verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, maybe part of the problem is that we, like Simon, don't think we have much need of forgiveness. I mean, we're not like that woman. We're not such a sinner as that. We haven't created or or committed any big sins. And, you know, we're better than most people. We love little or we are compelled to love little because we think we've been forgiven little. Maybe we think we just really don't need Jesus all that much. But it's when we realize that we are totally lost without Jesus that we begin to understand his love for us. That without Jesus we are condemned to die eternally. To be eternally separated from God. That without Jesus our sins separate us from God now and eternally. In today's world, no one wants to talk about sin. This world promotes a sort of gentleman's agreement. I won't talk about your sin and judge you if you don't talk about my sin and judge me. That if any, everyone just forgives and tolerates sins, promotes a, an approach that sin really isn't all that important, and if everyone just does as they wish and minds their own business, it'll be a better world. You know, while empathy is an important and an integral part of what love is all about, the world thinks that tolerance means acceptance of sin and that part of forgiving others involves accepting of sins. That's totally wrong. When we start accepting our own sin, much less the sin of others, we're headed in the wrong direction. God does not tolerate sin. To think that his forgiveness of our sins means that he tolerates sin totally negates and reflects a total misunderstanding of God's righteousness. When we sin, we create a debt that has to be paid. Being unable to pay the debt ourselves, our God, in the greatest example that has ever been and ever will be, paid it for us by sending his son to die for us. And how do we respond to a savior when we realize that every sin we commit is just another blow of the hammer that drove the nails into Jesus' wrists and ankles. When we realize that if we were the only sinner in the entire world that had ever sinned, that Christ would still have come, he would have still have hung on the cross, he would still have died to take care of my sins. I'm not sure just what the woman that anointed Jesus at Simon's house knew. It's evident that she knew one thing, that Jesus was the answer to her sin, to her guilt, to her separation from God. She knew the depths of agony caused by her sin and her guilt. She knew the supreme value of forgiveness, of being made right with God, having the burden of sin and guilt removed. She knew she experienced God's unconditional love. It was very real to her. So what has Jesus done for you? Do we understand that? Do we understand that he has lifted us from the pit of depravity? 
Do we realize where we would be without him? Brethren, if we come here and in our minds we aren't kneeling at the feet of Jesus, if inside the tears are not flowing, if the gifts we bring are not precious and aren't seen in our minds as a reflection, an anointing of Jesus, brethren, we have sadly missed the point. Too often, I think, we just come to church. We go through the motions. We often fail to come to worship. When someone like Simon was hosting a dinner, the custom of the day allowed for people to come in off the street to observe what was going on. The woman, however, wasn't welcome despite this custom. She was a sinner and seen by folks like Simon as a sinner. To come into the house had to have been very uncomfortable for her. But I tell you, I would not have wanted to be the one who tried to keep her out. Anyone who got in this woman's way would have been run over. In her mind, her worship was essential to her. It was a priority. It was vital. She recognized that her life depended on it. How could she not do this when she recognized what Jesus was able and willing to do for her? You know, coming to church, well, it's not a big deal, really. Coming to worship to show our gratitude, to show our appreciation, to thank God, to glorify God. That's a really, really big deal. That shows we understand what Jesus has done for us. That shows we have some understanding of God's unconditional love. And if we don't understand that, if that's not reflected in our worship, our coming together, how in the world will anybody know that we're a disciple of Christ? And frankly, they won't. Well, this is a heavy load. This is hard. There's so much at stake here. As Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, we desperately need God's help to help us with it. Understanding love is the key. To help with this as we close, I'd like to read Romans 8, 31 and following. And following... Uh, to again remind us just what God's love for us is all about. What he's done for us. How God's love can be real in our lives. How it should be reflected in our worship. And above all, how it should compel us to, to, to the worship to glorify our wonderful and loving Savior. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If this doesn't drive us, if this doesn't compel us to worship, then shame on us. God's gift of unconditional love can only be real in our lives and can only affect wondrous change in our lives if we understand it. This gift is only found in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.27 tells us that we put Christ on in baptism. If we can do that for you this morning, or if there's any other way that the congregation can help you, please let your needs be known as together we stand and sing.